So this morning, uh, we'll pick up in verse number 11 and uh, journey all the way through verse number 16. Uh, Jude is a fascinating book. Uh, Really, kind of like in the middle of this letter, Jude gives us almost like two mini-sermons in one short letter. Uh, The first sermon would have been from verses 5 through 10. And the second mini-sermon, we find ourselves within that text today, verses 11 through 16. Notice how he begins the section. He begins the section with the expression, woe to them. Uh, These words remind us of Jesus' criticism spoken against the scribes and the Pharisees for their unbelief and hypocrisy. He says, woe to them. Then he says, for for they have gone the way of Cain. And for pay, they have rushed headlong into the era of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. So, So Jude pronounces a prophetic woe against these false teachers, and he does so based upon three things that they have done. And he expands on those three things by comparing them to some notoriously famous Old Testament figures. So each one is rooted in the incident found in the Old Testament. First, he says that they walked in the way of Cain. Help you to remember that walking is used as a metaphor in Scripture for to describe the course of one's life. It, it encompasses all of a person's being. We find this metaphor used throughout Scripture. I'll give you a couple of examples on the screen. First one comes from Psalm chapter one, verses one and two. It says, "How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit." in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Paul uses it in Ephesians chapter 2, where he says that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. The fulfillment of the good works that God has prepared in advance should be a characteristic of of a Christ follower. We should embrace it. And so the way of Cain is the way of religion without faith. The way of Cain is the, the way of pride. It's the way of establishing one's own righteousness while rejecting the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Christ. In Genesis chapter 4, we find these words. It says, So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Then the Lord uh, said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? Then listen to the Lord's instructions. He says, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. But you must master 
it. The Lord gave clear instructions to Cain. And, and so before Cain became a murderer, God gave him a message. God spoke directly to him. God instructed him. And so the fact that Cain committed a violent act of murder tells us that in the end, Cain rejected the word of God. And so remembering that this letter was written to the church at large, but the church particularly was made up of a significantly large number of Jewish believers, it's important to note that Jewish literature remembered and documented Cain's treachery quite well. According to Jewish literature, they attributed to Cain characteristics like greed, violence, lust, and perhaps most relevant for Jude, they attributed to Cain the leading of people into wickedness. So Jude's point is, first, these false teachers, they they walked in the way of Cain, they ignored God's word, they led others into wickedness, And then secondly, he says that they rushed headlong into the error of Balaam. Now, I think typically uh, when we uh, talk or think about Balaam, uh, we make it so far as to Balaam's donkey. For a lot of us, that's all we really know about Balaam is a donkey. It's sad that we, we know more about the donkey than we do the actual prophet. So I would encourage you, educate yourself, uh, even today, and take time to read about Balaam in Numbers chapter 22 through 24, but don't stop there. You also need to include Numbers chapter 31 so that you get the full picture and so that you understand completely what Judah is trying to refer to here. Balaam was a true prophet of God. However, Balaam being a prophet of God he selfishly used his gift for personal gain. He selfishly used his gift for personal gain and to bring about a destruction among God's people. So there is great danger in the misuse of one's spiritual gift. There's great danger in misusing ministry for the pursuit of personal gain. There's danger and using the, the spiritual in order to receive the material. These false teachers were, were guilty of material gain, and like Balaam, they would do anything for profit, anything to earn that money. And so the error of Balaam is thinking that you can get away with this type of rebellion against the will of God. And so first, they they walked in the way of Cain. Second, they rushed headlong into the error of Balaam. And then third, they perished in the rebellion of Korah. Korah's rebellion is documented in Numbers chapter 16. There, Korah led a rebellion against Moses and Aaron's leadership. And so Korah refused to acknowledge and accept the authority of Moses and Aaron. And that's a huge problem. Remember from last week, we talked about how all authority comes from the throne of God. 
And so Korah's sin and rebellion against God's appointed authority was a rebellion against, yes, Moses and Aaron, but ultimately it was rebellion against the throne of God. And so the Lord judged Korah and his followers. And he also judged those who grumbled about God's judgment about Korah and his followers. And so God enacted his judgment upon them. And so here's what Jude's doing, right? Using these three examples from the past, Jude tells us that like Cain, false teachers reject God's instructions. Like Balaam, false teachers misuse God's gifts. And like Korah, false teachers deny God's authority. And so as we get into verses 12 and 13, Jude is going to explain why these teachers are a danger to the church. And he's going to do so by giving us some very vivid imagery here. And so let's pick up in verse 12 and 13. I'll just read through those two verses first, and then I'll show you the imagery second. Verse 12. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feast when they feast with you without fear. Caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Let me point out six vivid images images here. First of all, he says that they are hidden reefs. He says, hidden reefs in your love feast when they feast with you without fear. So these false teachers were feasting alongside the believers in their love feast. A a love feast was uh, like a fellowship meal that the church would share together at the conclusion of their corporate gathering on the Lord's Day. Baptist lingo? It's potluck fellowship after church. Okay? And so, during these meals, they would also include the partaking of communion. And so, as hidden reefs, their treachery lies just below the surface. Right? Just below the surface, destroying the unsuspecting. And notice how these false teachers, they feast without fear. There's no fear of God. There's no thought about the damage and the destruction that they're bringing about the fellowship of the church. No, they, they feast without fear. They show no concern for their sinful lives, nor do they show any concern for the destruction that they're bringing about within the body of Christ. And so they're hidden wreaths. Number two, he says that they're caring for themselves. I particularly love the way the ESV and the New Living Translations render this section. The ESV puts it like this. They are shepherds feeding themselves. The New Living Translation says that they are like shameless shepherds who care only for themselves. In other words, instead of protecting and feeding the people like a good shepherd would do, these false teachers were only interested in exploiting the sheep for their own benefit. Their focus was self-directed. They were self-seeking. They were 
self-centered, caring for themselves. Number three, describes them as clouds without water, carried along by winds. Uh, Like clouds, they, they give the appearance of holding rain, but in fact, they don't. False teachers appear to have great knowledge and insight, but in reality, they are empty. They offer no spiritual nourishment to those that listen or to those that follow them. They're clouds without water. In fact, it says that they're carried along by winds. This reveals the fact that they're easily persuaded by the whims of thought. They're blown about by the whims of personal impulse or doctrinal confusion. And so they're clouds without water. Number four, they're autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. Jude's saying that these false teachers are spiritually dead. Autumn is the time of year for harvesting fruit from the trees. And so a tree in autumn that is without fruit is evident of a dead tree. And so a fruitless tree that is uprooted is doubly dead. And so that means it's, it's dead forever. Right? So the dead condition of these false teachers was indicated by two things. It's indicated by they didn't produce spiritual fruit in their own lives. And they were, in fact, without spiritual roots. Because of that, they faced God's judgment. Number five. So the wild waves. Wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam. Wild waves portrays an erratic and uncontrolled behavior of these false teachers. In the end, they produce nothing that is edifying, nothing that is uplifting, nothing that is helpful, nothing that is nourishing, nothing that endures for the glory of God. No, what they produce ultimately is shame. The number six describes them as wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Wandering stars would be like what we would call a shooting star that moves across the sky, shining briefly, then vanishing completely. But likewise, the prominence of false teachers is short-lived. While they do lead the, the careless away, pretending, pretending to be what in fact they're not, Ultimately, they will be swallowed up with the black darkness forever. This is the finality of that. Jude says in verse number 1, it's like just as believers are kept for Christ, in verse number 21, just as believers are to keep themselves in the love of God, Jude's saying that so too the eternal condemnation of false teachers are kept for the ungodly and for the unbelieving enemies of God. In other words, eternal judgment is a certain reality. So Jude's now going to very masterfully connect these false teachers with, a, with another Old Testament figure. This one is Enoch. 
Look at verse 14. It's interesting. He says, it was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. See the repetition of that word ungodly in there? Now, when you read through a rather lengthy genealogy in Genesis chapter 5, we'll learn that Enoch was the great, 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 great grandson. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, of Adam. In other words, he's the, he's the seventh from Adam. So in a society that is being polluted and destroyed by sin, Enoch walked with God keeping his life clean. It stood out. In fact, Scripture tells us in Genesis chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, it says, So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not. For God took him. That's what we have. While Enoch was in this world, Walking with God, he also prophesied. He prophesied and he announced the coming judgment that was on the horizon. But you'll notice if you're a student of the Scriptures that the prophecy being quoted here is not found anywhere in the Old Testament. In fact, Jude is now quoting from a non-canonical book Uh, It's called the book of Enoch. And so what Jude is doing here is what we've already seen him do in verse number 9 with the assumption of Moses. Right? He he referred to another extra-biblical piece of literature in verse number 9, and he's also referring to a different extra-biblical, outside-of-Scripture literature here by quoting from the book of Enoch. And so if you struggle with that, I want to help put your mind at ease. What, what, what Jude is doing is that he's pulling from the literature of his own day when it lends support to, by way of illustration to the point that he's trying to make with the, the recipients of, of the letter. So in this case, he pulls from first Enoch. And so more specifically, he, he pulls from a portion of Scripture or a portion of text, rather, from First Enoch that supports his claim that God is going to execute judgment against everyone who perverts his ways. He, it's as if he's saying, look, the Bible's not the only place that talks about it. Like, it's in your own literature. Read it for yourself. That's the point that he's trying to make. And so in an effort to try to put you at ease that, that Jude would mention text that's non-biblical, there's an interesting response uh, provided by William Barclay. And I think it's a beautiful way of handling uh, this question or this concern. Uh, and so he, in his statement, he asked the question, are we then to regard Enoch as sacred scripture since Jude uses it exactly as he would have used 
one of the prophets? Good question. Then he says, or are we to take the view of which Jerome speaks? Are we to say that Jude cannot be Scripture? Because Jude makes the mistake of using as Scripture a book which is, in fact, not Scripture? What do we do? Right? That's what he's asking. Are we to say, okay, well, because Jude mentions Enoch, then Enoch must be on the same level as God's Word. Or do we take the other approach? Well, Jude's messed up. He referred to something outside of Scripture, therefore Jude's disqualified. We should remove Jude. His answer is, we need not waste time at all upon this debate. The fact that Jude, a pious Jew, knew and loved the book of Enoch and had grown up in a circle, in a sphere, where the book of Enoch was regarded with respect and even reverence. And he takes his quotation from it perfectly naturally, knowing that his readers would recognize it and that they would respect it. Jude is simply doing what all New Testament writers do, at which every writer must do in every age. He's speaking to men in language which they recognized and understood. It's a great answer. So what do you do with the book of Enoch? Should believers, scholars and students of God's Word, spend time reading through extra-biblical books, apocryphal books like, like this? My answer to you, to be as concise and clear as I can, I would say, if you want to read it, read it. It might be helpful. But it is on no way on par with God's holy Word. If you read it, read it in light of God's Word. If there's something that's in there that validates God's Word, be encouraged by it. But should you or do you have to read it? No, not at all. Because we have everything that we need to know in order to know Him and to live a life that honors and glorifies Him through what we have in His Word. So it could be beneficial, but it's not necessarily needed. So you do what you think is right and appropriate for you. Jude's point is that the ungodly who are everywhere, who are in every generation, they will be judged. The ungodly false teachers are are judged according to two things. He says, first, they're convicted because of their ungodly deeds, their actions, what they do. And then second, he says that they'll be convicted of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. It's both by their actions and their words. So rather than being true spiritual leaders, they have acted against Christ and they have spoken against Christ. And that's why they'll face the judgment. Then in verse number 16, Jude offers a a, a further description of false teachers. Notice what he says. He says they are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lust. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. So here, Jude describes these false teachers in a fourfold manner, just real quick. Number one, 
It says that they're grumblers and fault finders. They grumble and they find fault in others, but they never take time to see the flaws and the faults within themselves. Number two, it says that they, they follow after their own lust. In other words, they chase after those evil desires. Number three, it says they, they speak arrogantly about themselves. That's an interesting word that's used here. Because there's only one other place in, in, in the New Testament where we find that phrase, speak arrogantly. And that's found in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse number 18. It means that their, their speech was, was puffed up. They had swollen speech, puffed up speech. Their language just exuded arrogance. And then it says that they flattered others. But they did so for the sake of gaining advantage for themselves. So in other words, they were vocally discontent. They were sinfully self-centered. They were excessively egotistical. And they were deceptively flattering. This was true of false teachers then. It's true of false teachers today. So to this point, Jude has clearly identified false teachers. He's exposed their character. He's revealed their, their nature. He's disclosed their destiny. And in doing so, Jude's laying the groundwork to call the readers back to action against these ungodly men and their evil practices. And so what we're going to see is beginning of next week in verse number 17, Jude's going to return to the themes of verses 3 through 5. He's going to return and explain what it means to contend for the faith. That's the whole point. Contend for the faith. That call, that explanation is where we'll pick up next week. I pray that you'll come back and join us as we do. In this moment, I'd like to lead us in a, in a prayer before we have a time of response. And just know that the elders and I will be at the front to pray with you, to encourage you. Uh, if you have a, a decision or a commitment to make, you need prayer, you need help, you'd like to join this church, whatever it is, we'd love to speak to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you your love thank you for your word god thank you for the establishment of your church but god help us to to receive your word into our hearts and lives and to strive to rightly apply it to to what we do and how we live and how we talk to one another god may you be honored and glorified through our actions and through our words and god may we be strengthened to contend for the faith may we be Strong witnesses for your glory and your grace. God, in this time of response, may decisions be made that would honor and glorify you. Whatever that means, whatever it takes, may you be glorified. In Christ's name I pray.